Well, good evening, brothers and sisters. Truly, the Lord is our salvation. Aren't you grateful for that this evening? I would like to invite you now to turn in your copy of God's Word to Jude, the epistle of Jude, toward the end of your Bible, right before the book of Revelation. This will be our sermon text for tonight. It will be Jude, verses 3 through 4. But again, uh, as you're turning there, I want to uh, read the entire text of Jude um, for us to continue to have a full context and just to rehearse what we have already heard and seen from this epistle given to God's people. I want to remind you that Jude is writing as one who sees himself as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. His pen is taken up by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's in the Holy Spirit writing to serve the people of God, to point us to Jesus, the one who has redeemed us and saved us, And he's also reminded you already of who you are in Christ. That you have been called by God to Christ. That you are loved by God in Christ, brothers and sisters. And that God is keeping you for the Lord Jesus. Not only is he reminding you who you are. Remember, he reminded us who we are, but he also prayed that we would receive in abundance what we need. Mercy, peace. And love. Being reminded of that, let's take up this text again and let's hear the word of God spoken to us, written for us from the pen of Jude. This is the word of the Lord. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, 
uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the servant, the seventh of, from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And all of the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This is God's word. Let's give him thanks. Our great and glorious God, we thank you and give you praise for your word to us this evening. We thank you that you have opened our ears to hear. We thank you that by your Holy Spirit, you have opened the eyes of your people to see wonderful things in your word. That, Lord, you have changed and transformed our hearts so powerfully to receive your word, to be transformed by your word, to live in fellowship with you, but also to walk and to bear fruit from that fellowship. Lord, would you cause righteousness to increase in our midst as we continue to cling to Jesus? Will you cause us to be fruitful people in your world so that others might see the glory of the gospel when they hear it? We thank you for your word. We pray that you'd be in our midst. Empower your preached word, we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Once again, I just want to read verses 3 and 4, the primary text for our sermon this evening. It says, verses 3 and 4, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. When Jude says to the people whom he loves, he calls them beloved, that affectionate term. But he calls them the beloved 
because of their union with and their fellowship with one another in the belovedness, in the beloved that God has established. Because God loves you, now I can turn to you, Jude says, and call you my beloved as well, my treasured, my, my darling people, this darling congregation, you are precious to me because you are precious to God. And so before he goes any further, he reminds them of, in the, in the introduction, he reminds them of who they are, but he tells them who they are in his, from his perspective, you are beloved. You are my beloved because you are the beloved of God. This is a pastor's heart just bleeding out, wanting, his con- wanting the congregation to know that he loves them and everything that he's going to speak, he intends for their good. Beloved. He says, I was eager. I was, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, he can't help but think about what God has done in the personal work of Jesus Christ to save sinners like himself and those who he's writing to. He's like, when I think about talking to you, when I think about writing to you, I'm eager to write to you about all that God has done in Christ. How we who were dead in our sins and transgressions have been made alive in Christ Jesus. How we who once lived in darkness had been transferred into the kingdom of God and the kingdom of light. How we who were orphans laying in a ditch left to die. God came to us, rescued us, cleaned us up and adopted us into his beloved family. This is who we are. This is what Christ has done for us. We have been delivered We have been healed. We have been saved. We've been made alive in Jesus. And he was eager to write to them an exposition just expounding on the glories of who Christ is and what he has done. Like any good pastor. Just to glory in salvation. To explore the land that we now live in. This this new life that we have in Christ. It's like Jude just wants to take us by the arm and walk us into the land of this salvation that we have in Christ and just point out all the good things that we have. I remember the first time that Rochelle and I went out to Phoenix, Arizona and to be with our son Benjamin, and he took us to his little dorm room where there were three teenage boys living together in what is called a glorified uh, jail cell. I mean, it's like three bunks in a bathroom. I mean, it was the smallest, dinkiest thing. He's like, so here's where I keep my toothbrush. And here's where I sleep. Here's where my computer goes underneath my bunk. I'm like, you study under your bunk? But he was just so excited to show us all around in, into, this, into this new world that he was living in. And then he got married and moved into an apartment. And we went out to visit him, and he's like walking us through the apartment. Now, this is where uh, all these drawers, this is where we keep our toothbrush. And he's just fascinated to show us all the nook and crannies of all the spaces he's ever lived in. And this is our bedroom. This is our bathroom. This is, and it's just like you like walk in, take a step, there's a room. Take four more steps, there's another room. And it's just like this small apartment, but it's huge to him. And he just glories in what he has. That's what Jude is doing when he's talking about our common salvation. He just wants to glory in all that God has done, pointing out all the wonderful things that God has done for you in Christ Jesus. He's eager to write to them. That was his intended purpose, to write to them eagerly about their common salvation, just to expound all the goodness of what Christ has done. That's what he intended to do. But now he has a new purpose, he says. I intended to write to you 
I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, but I found it necessary to write an appeal, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. This is what Jude is going to do. He's going to tell us his purpose for writing this book. And the first purpose that he has for us is this, an appeal, an exhortation, an urgent appeal for the church of God to contend for the faith, to fight for the faith. His first purpose is to exhort the people of God to contend for the faith that he loves to boast in. So he moves from wanting to give an exposition, he moves into exhortation, an urgent appeal to fight for what you have in Christ, to contend for the truth that is in Christ Jesus. When he speaks of our common salvation, he says, and he also says contend for the faith, he's just merely talking about the glory of the gospel. What's at stake here is the gospel, the good news of what God has done for sinners and how he transforms their hearts, but also empowers them to live for God's glory. He's writing this appeal. He's exhorting them to contend for that faith, for the good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ. But not just mere doctrines. He wants them to contend for the fullness of faith, what Paul in Romans 1 will call also the obedience of faith. You have been saved. You have been rescued. You have been transformed in Christ. But you've been saved from sin to live a new kind of life. You've been saved from death to live in this new reality under God's gracious reign and rule in the kingdom of God. It is, yes, the fullness of what God has done, but also the fullness of what God wants to continue to do now that you are his people. The faith, the gospel. You have been redeemed, but you've also been commissioned. You have been saved from sin, but you've been now called to live righteous and holy lives. You have been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness, brought into the kingdom of light, You were once a slave to sin, we've heard this, but now you're slaves to righteousness. Contend for the full gospel, contend for the fullness of the faith that was delivered to you, that you heard when the apostles opened their mouth to proclaim the goodness of what God has done. It was passed on to you, this idea of it being delivered to you or passed on to you is an Old Testament idea of receiving even the covenants and receiving the law. It's been passed down from generation to generation to generation and the people of God were to receive it and to hear it, to meditate on it so that they could obey it and love it and put all their trust in the God who was so gracious to speak a word to them. And what Judah's saying is, Contend for the faith, the good news of the gospel, and the fullness of the gospel that was delivered to you. That was delivered to you in such a way that it came with authority from the apostles. It is the true message of what we are to believe concerning the Lord Jesus. And notice that he says it was delivered to who? 
It was delivered to the saints. You who have received it. You who have been changed by it. Oftentimes we go around to say, I'm just a sinner. Just, just, just a sinner saved by grace. And Jude's like, Paul's the same way. The New Testament, you are saints. This isn't something that's going to happen in your future where you will be made a saint because some guy in Rome decides to wave his hand and declare it so. No, the king of heaven has already declared you are saints in Christ. You are his holy ones. This message has been delivered to you who have been transformed by this message. So contend for the good news of the gospel that was delivered to you. What you heard from them, cling to it. Don't seek to add to it. Don't seek to take away from it. What you, what you received, take it. Love it. Obey it. It's been passed down to you. Treasure it. But also, keep it in such a way that you can pass it on to someone else. But then he says it's contend for the faith. And this phrase here, that was once for all delivered to the saints. It is the gospel once for all. One theologian, Dick Lucas in England said, it's the once for all faith delivered that is complete. It's not lacking anything. It is settled. It has been accomplished. God has saved his people. This is the announcement of what God has done. And it is final. Once for all, deliver to you the saints. Contend for the gospel. Contend for what you've received. Contend for all of it. It's complete. It's final. It's settled. You can trust the word that was delivered to you. His first purpose is to appeal to them, to exhort them with urgency, to fight for the faith, the good news of the gospel that they have received. But what caused this change from exposition to exhortation? What was the occasion for this change? He says in verse 4, my purpose in writing you is to exhort you to contend for the faith, but also his second purpose is to expose those who oppose the faith, to expose those who are living in contradiction to what you've received. He says for certain people, he doesn't give us names, but he does tell us what they're like. Mark this. Look really closely at this. Verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed. Have you ever met someone who just sneaks and creeps around? Is a sneaky person? Is a conniving person? Do you remember when the first time we saw something that was creeping around, sneaking around in a place it did not belong? Do you remember Genesis 3? The serpent was more crafty of all the beasts, sneaking, creeping, 
How did it get here? That's exactly what's happened here. People have come into this church, come into this congregation from the outside. Certain people have crept in unnoticed, and they're just among you. And you're not acknowledging them for who they are and what they're doing. These certain people have crept in unnoticed because they say the right words. They might even say, we love the Lord. We love Jesus. Oh, the gospel, yes. Amen. The gospel of grace. We're for it. And they're not lying when they say that based on their understanding. And we'll see more about that. But he says certain people have crept in unnoticed. I've tried to hesitate from saying just creepy people. Because we have an image of that. But they're sneaky people. People that don't want you to get too close because you might really find them out. They let you in just as far as they want to let you in. And in a way, they're controlling you. That sort of person. He says they have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Now, I'm not going to unpack that phrase this evening. That is... Lord willing, the next sermon that I'll preach. Because what he does here is he says, those who long ago were designated for this condemnation, he's going to unpack it in verses 5 through 10. And we'll save that phrase for then. We'll use it as a springboard to get into that text. But he says, certain people who have crept in, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, he gives another marker of them, ungodly people. People who live godless lives. People, don't listen to what they're saying. Look at how they're living. They are living as if God does not exist. They are people who are living as if there is no judgment to come. They are ungodly people, godless, living as if God doesn't exist. How do we know? Well, he describes what they do. These ungodly people pervert the grace of God into sensuality. They hear the gospel of grace. They hear about the forgiveness of sins. They hear about getting clean from shame and from guilt. And they love that. They are unburdened from their guilt and shame. But notice what they do? They pervert that. They flip it on its head. They transform that. They hear about the cleansing from guilt and shame and the lifting of the burden of that guilt and shame, and they go on to live unbridled lives. There's no accountability. We're just saved. It's that Romans 6 problem. Well, grace is growing here. Well, sin was growing, but grace abounded more. So let's just keep sinning so there'll be more graces in their mind. Let's just keep on sinning so God can keep being gracious. That's ungodliness. That's a perversion of the grace of God. But notice that he uses the word, they pervert the grace of God into sensuality. They use the grace of God to cover up their sexual immorality. Their unbridled desires. Their unbridled cravings. This sensuality 
is sexual immorality. They twist the grace of God so that they can continue to live unbridled lives. No accountability. The burden's been lifted. I can continue to live because if I get a little conviction, I can just run back to the grace of God. What a perversion of the grace of God. People who are in their fellowship who have turned, perverted, transformed the grace of God into license. That's the word that we need to pay attention to. They see grace now as a free pass to live however they want to live. And they're causing others to follow in suit. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. Well, that was certainly a first century issue, wasn't it? Oh, brothers and sisters, let's be very careful to pay attention to what Judah's saying. There are people within the church who use the gospel to affirm the life they choose. Well, God just loves everybody. So it doesn't really matter how I live. God has no requirement for me to change. He's just forgiven me. Christians aren't perfect. They're just forgiven. As if that's some kind of justification not to pursue holiness. No. Because we receive the grace of God, we ought to seek to love, to obey his law. So we even heard this morning, we no longer are deterred or scared of the law. No, we have been changed and transformed that now we love the law of God. We seek to obey it, to walk in it. Because we have been transformed in our hearts and lives by the powerful working of Jesus Christ. In the new covenant, we've been given new hearts. We are saints. We can pursue that life together. But you hear people in the church, especially in the church broadly, like using the scriptures to justify their sensuality. Recently, I was watching a uh, documentary that was really taking the task, some traditions and some movements that had been historically in the church. And what was interesting about those who were condemning those, those people who were seeking to live holy lives, they were, they were trying to apply the gospel and trying to call their families to holiness and to obedience to Christ Jesus. They weren't doing it perfectly. There, there was some mess, because wherever there's humans, there's mess, right? They weren't doing it perfectly. But they were aiming at glorifying God and obeying Jesus. That was the intention of the people they were criticizing. But if you looked at the people who were criticizing and pay really close attention to the documentary, uh, the books that were sitting on their shelves next to them, these are people who hate the gospel. These are people who hate the church. These are people who are not evangelists of the, of the kingdom of God. They are people who are wanting to tear down the church. They hate the grace of God. Which leads us to this second aspect of these ungodly people is that they deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. 
They don't want his authority. They don't want his reign. They don't want his rule. They just want to live how they want to live and everybody get along and like them without any kind of judgment. They deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Ungodly people who are trying to shake themselves free from the gracious reign and rule of King Jesus. Well, that sounds like the nations in Psalm 2 who want to be unfettered from the demands of the gospel. And I use that word intentionally, the demands of the gospel. You've been called freely into this kingdom of life. Grace is given to you. But once you've received grace, your heart's been transformed, there's also demands that come. Be holy as I am holy. Put off the old man, put on the new. Seek first the kingdom of God. Don't seek your own way. There are demands that come with the gospel. And it's good news too. You no longer have to live selfish lives. No, you can come underneath the reign and rule of our master and Lord, Jesus Christ. But these people, these ungodly people, deny our only master. Remind you again that Jude calls himself a servant of Jesus Christ. And he doesn't use the word of servant to be a household servant. He uses the word doulos, slave. I'm a bond servant. I'm indebted to the king. He is my master. I give myself fully to him. Jesus is our master. It's also a royal title that they would have used in in Rome for Caesar, that he is the master. It is almost speaking of a divine ruler. This is who Jesus is. Caesar pretends Jesus is our master, but they deny him. And he's also our Lord. He is the one who has come to us in the flesh, who in the Old Testament gave us the law. He's the covenant-keeping God. He is our Lord in the flesh who is with us. And we ought to submit ourselves fully to him. He begins by calling them appealing to them, exhorting them, contend for the faith, contend for the good news of what God has done for sinners like us. Don't give the enemy any ground. You have been given this new land of salvation to live in and to dwell in. It's not time to walk around it and point out all the wonderful things. It's time to stand at the borders and fight for what you have been given. And what he's going to do in this book He's going to show us more about who these people are in verses 5 through 16. Those who long ago were designated for this condemnation, he'll unpack more for us about who these certain people, these ungodly people are. But when he says contend for the faith, he's also going to show us how to actually do it. And if you want to read ahead, and I encourage you to do that, You can look at verses 17 through 23, where he will show you exactly what he means when he says, contend for the faith. And if you go back and you remember what we read earlier and consider that, it's going to require more 
of what he prayed for in verse 2. That God would multiply in abundance to us his mercy, his peace, and his love. Because that is what's going to be required for us to fight, to contend for the faith with those who are opposing us. But be of good cheer, brothers and sisters. God has given you everything that you need to fight the fight, to contend for the faith. You lack nothing because God has graciously given you everything in the Lord Jesus Christ, our only master and Lord. Let's keep putting our trust in him, looking to him as we continue to live in this glorious land of the salvation that he's given to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time to reflect upon your word. Would you now take these words and apply them to our hearts? Would we hear the exhortation that Jude has given that we would fight for the faith, that we'd be mindful that there really is an enemy, there really are those who oppose the gospel. But you have given us such liberty and grace and joy in the gospel. And you've empowered us by your Holy Spirit to stand firm in the gospel. So Lord, would you even now, make us mindful of what we've received in this salvation, that we might contend for it, that those who we contend against would hear it, repent, and believe, because you are a gracious God, and you are merciful to those who turn to you. So, Father, would you use us, bring your word to our hearts, apply it, that we might live it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.